you need a plan. How are you going to manage your investments? How are you going to manage contributing to your retirement? How are you going to manage taxation in a foreign country? How are you going to manage your U.S. credit? How are you going to manage identity theft? And people don't think about these things at all. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while also exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain, and I'm not only an award-winning podcaster, although I enjoy saying that. I'm also a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable businesses, businesses that make them financially abundant as well as professionally fulfilled. And so if you are interested in starting a business abroad or starting a business to take abroad, I invite you to download the Build a Business Abroad guide that I have on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. If you're interested in moving abroad with intention, as I hope everyone is, I also have a guide for that. It is an over 40 page guide that's going to help you get really clear about exactly what you're looking for in your journey abroad, in your life abroad, so that you can go abroad and truly live a life well lived and also to be able to sustain yourself. You can also get that guide at the website flourishintheforeign.com. So we are winding down season one of this here podcast. I'm super, super excited to really unveil season two already. But in the meantime, between time, between seasons, I invite you to follow the podcast on Instagram at Flourish Foreign and also subscribe to the YouTube channel at Flourish in the Foreign on YouTube. The YouTube channel has been quiet as of late, but actually it's going to be quite active while the podcast is on hiatus. So I invite you to join me there. And I also invite you to join the Flourish in the Foreign membership. As I've been saying for a couple of weeks, it's a community that I'm really excited about cultivating. I'm going to be bringing on past podcast guests. That's where all of our book club discussions will be going on from now on. That's where if I do another podcast workshop will be done there. I'll be doing some behind the scenes there and I'll be chatting with you guys quite regularly. So I'm really excited to cultivate this community with all of you. I'm really excited to bring some of the things that I have been wanting to do, but really didn't know where I would put it. And the membership is the place to put it. So I'm super excited for you to join me in the membership. If it sounds like something you're interested in, definitely join the membership waitlist so that I can email you when the door is open, tell you all about it, walk y'all through it, and do all of those good things. And even though Flourish No Foreign is an award-winning podcast, it is still a labor of love and labor nonetheless. And so I invite you all to support this podcast. You can support this podcast via Patreon at patreon.com slash flourishforn. 
via Buy Me a Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can cash out the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. You can purchase a piece of podcasting equipment via our Amazon wish list, which you can find at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. And of course, please continue to leave reviews for the podcast. I really, really enjoy reading those reviews and they really do help with discoverability for the podcast. If you have a favorite blog, vlog or whomever, please send this podcast to them because the growth of this podcast is directly attributed to all of you sharing this podcast with your friends and your family and your community. And I deeply, deeply appreciate it. All right, on to the next episode. Today's episode is a compilation all about financial wellness. So get your pen and paper and take some serious, serious notes, regardless if you are thinking about going abroad or if you are already abroad. If you really want to get your financial house in order and make sure that you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do, you'll definitely want to take a close listen to this episode. You'll be hearing from four guests that have been either guests on the podcast or actually on the YouTube channel. So you'll be hearing from Adelia of Picky Girls Travels, who has been a guest on the podcast. You will hear from Lisa R. Mitchell of Living a Global Lifestyle, who's also been a guest on the podcast. You will also hear from Aquania Escarne, who was an amazing guest on the YouTube channel and also has the incredible platform and podcast, The Purpose of Money. And you will hear from expat tax professional extraordinaire, Tanya Munford-Pitts, talking all about expat taxes. So one of the questions I get asked all of the time is about how much money should you have saved to go abroad? So I post this question to financial coach Aquania Escarne. That's a great question. So I think it depends on your personal situation and how do you want to live abroad? Because I've been abroad with Peace Corps volunteers who have sometimes a very thin budget and they're able to provide what they need for themselves. Whereas at my last time abroad, I was with a family, right? So I had very different needs than someone who's single. But my rule of thumb is you should try to save at least three to six months of savings, just like if you were at home, based on what you think you're going to need. So a lot of this research, thanks to Google, is out there on the internet. You can get a good sense of the average cost of housing where you're trying to go. And then you can also find out whether or not you're going to work abroad on the local economy? And if so, do the employers normally cover housing or are you going to be expected to cover that expense yourself? So for example, in Haiti, a lot of times you could work for a local non-NGO or a local company, but you would be expected to pay your housing costs. Whereas in Dubai, Everybody who's an expat there, if you're working for another company, which you had to have some status to be there, your, hou your housing was normally completely covered 
by your employer or through a stipend that was given to you. So you knew that you could choose to live somewhere within the stipend amount, right? So if you're going to a place where housing is covered, then maybe your savings doesn't need to include that amount, but you will want to include money for food, money for any other expenses you may be expected to pay, such as utilities. If you're not going to have public transportation, you may want to save money for uh, you to buy a car or some type of transportation while you get there. And then having money to travel if one of your goals is to travel from where you are. But think about that number by doing your research. Researching the country is in an expensive place. Obviously, the budget for someone moving to London is going to be very different for someone moving to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, right? They're just very different countries to live in and much, much different expenses. But I would start with that. And the reason I say that is because some countries will require that you show proof of income or finances in order to support your stay in the event you are going there and you plan to look for employment after arrival. I also lived in Italy for a year. I lived in Bologna, Italy, and Italy was one of those places where I was going there as a graduate student, but I still had to prove that I had income to support my studies because I wasn't going to be working while I was a student. So it really depends on the context in which you're going abroad and what you plan to do. But once you get a budget, then you can save three to six months of that budget. And I would save for living abroad just like any other savings goal. People save for a house, a car, or any major expense if they're good about it consistently and with every paycheck. So decide what you can afford to save. If it's 10% per paycheck, save that much. If it's more, push yourself to save more. And then any bonuses, any birthday money, anytime you get extra income, use that extra income to put towards the saving goal and actually put it somewhere where you can see it. So you're motivated to save towards this goal and you always know where you are. So that way, maybe other people can support you. So if they see your savings chart for your year abroad, in Spain, for example, and then your birthday's coming up, maybe instead of buying you a gift card, they'll give you money towards your travel. So your travel fund. So I think that's the best way to do it. And in my finances, I save for my next vacation all the time anyway, with every paycheck. So in your case, it would be your move abroad fund. And I want to ask you, Aquanium, how did you, pre- how did you prepare yourself to go abroad financially? And how did you manage your own funds and things like that? So I am a little special in that my job is what led me to living abroad. They are the ones who found, well, I helped find the place. They helped me move and they helped me facilitate having a job on the other end. But my husband was in the private sector and he still is. And he had to do a little bit more creative work to make it work for us. But he also was able to find an abroad opportunity through his current employer. And he took what we call a sabbatical from the U.S. office in order to go work in the foreign office abroad. But the advice can still be applicable to anyone who's thinking about this. So some of the things we did was we started a year in advance before we even packed one bag and got on anybody's plane, we were planning. So in that year before departure, we solidified where we were gonna live and how we wanted to live. And we got a good estimate of how much we were gonna make when we got to our other destination. We thought about what would be best for our finances, 
whether it be to rent our house or to sell it. And at that time, it made the most sense to rent it. So then we also, about three months before departure, prepared our home for it to be viewed and shown so that we could rent it successfully by the time we departed. And then we also thought through you know, what are some of the things that we definitely don't want to have to deal with when we're gone, such as storage. So we sold a lot of things that we knew we would not want to use or come back to when we came back to the States. But if there were any family heirlooms that were very valuable to us, we decided to give those to other family members for safekeeping. And then the things that we wanted to take with us so it would feel like home abroad, those are the things we shipped and packed. So I'm of the mindset, and perhaps you have picked it up from listening to this podcast. For me, it's not about just going abroad, right? It's really about being well and doing the things that you want to do, about cultivating a life well-lived. And part of that is also thinking about generating wealth and building wealth while you're abroad, whether it be generational wealth, if you have children and legacy like that, or if it's just for you and in this lifetime, (laughs) and perhaps for some of the issues and endeavors that you are passionate about. And so I posed the question to Aquania Escarne, who has a lot of experience in generational wealth building. If you do not know who she is, you better ask somebody and check out her full interview that I did on the YouTube channel. So I asked her, where do you get started when you're wanting to build generational wealth abroad? I think you should take advantage of the savings first. My husband and I living three years abroad, having our housing paid for by our employers and not having the largest chunk of our budget coming out of our monthly income was what we saved first because we had our house rented in the US. We made the tenants rent cover the mortgage. So we weren't trying to pay, you know, pay Peter, pay Paul, and then see what's left over. We were like, no, we're running the rental like a business. The bank account that the rent goes into is the bank account that the mortgage comes out of, period. But we pretended like we were still paying our mortgage, right? Because That is the easiest money to identify. My salary didn't change just because I moved abroad. My husband's salary did, but he still was making income. And so we could still budget for that, right? So what we paid for our mortgage in the US is what we saved every month when we were abroad. And then taking into consideration a few things that would change for us, like food costs more in Dubai because most of it's imported. They don't grow as many fruits and vegetables in country. So we had to increase our food budget, but not by the same extent as the mortgage we used to pay. We weren't eating that much food, right? So that's where I would start. Whatever expenses you suddenly don't have anymore, those should be instant areas where you should be able to save. If you already have your three to six months savings before you left, because that's the advice I gave before, then you definitely can afford to take that money and invest it in the stock market, invest it in retirement accounts, or other things you may be interested in. I know plenty of people who have saved down payments abroad and then come back on vacations and purchase rental properties. So it really depends on what you're interested in. You know, like I said, being a landlord is not for everyone. 
but it is a great way to build wealth if you want that passive income, if you want houses that you can pass down to your family's next generation. But I've had people who's like, don't want to own real estate. That's not their thing. They want to be more passive. So if you are a digital nomad, you probably have a blog or some type of platform or service. Maybe that platform could include affiliate marketing. That's a way to make money and sell other people's products to your audience without having to hold inventory or any type of product that you actually have to get to a customer. And that's a way to make passive income that you could invest. I also know that there's passive real estate opportunities. So like, for example, I recently purchased ownership in a hotel. I don't have to manage the hotel. I am not making sure employees show up to work and I don't make sure the sheets are changed. But there is a property manager who does all of that. And all I had to do was invest capital. And the capital that I invested was money I saved. So you can build up your savings and then choose to do passive investing and whatever the product gives you, you get like in hotel industry, you get dividends every quarter based on the profits of the revenue of the hotel in stocks. If you get stocks that pay dividends, you're going to get a dividend check whenever the dividends are paid out. Normally also once a quarter, if you do affiliate marketing, you're going to get paid every time you sell someone else's product. So there's different ways in which you can make money and reinvest that money into assets that generate more money. So those are just some ideas. And a lot of that is easier to do because you've budgeted, you've saved before you went abroad and you've dropped some expenses, right? So you know what you can afford to save. You know, being abroad for a while, I have seen a wide variety of money issues go down between people I know or just people on expat forums. And I think as women, it is really important for us to get a grasp of our financial wellness, uh, especially if we're going to be abroad for circumstances that may arise that we may just need to cut and run. And if you haven't been convinced by the global pandemic that we all encountered in 2020, then I don't know what to tell you. It is imperative for you to have an emergency fund or as Adelia of Picky Girl Travel says, F you money. Yes, F meaning expletive, you money. And I'm going to let her tell you about it. F you money is the, it, that's the money that gives you the freedom to say F you. To, I'm sorry if y'all heard that, that's the dog. To F that man, F that job, F that country. If you are in a situation that is not treating you well, the biggest Im impediment I have seen is that money. I can't leave because I can't afford it or I can't, you know. And so having that fund, gives you the freedom to walk away from situations that do not serve you. My experience in Kuwait is a prime example of that. It was literally an abusive work situation. And I looked around, at, you know, like as I'm getting there and I'm like, y'all get that this is not healthy. Like this should not be going down like this. And everybody's just kind of hunkering down, put their head down. Like I'm just trying to make it to, to June. And I was like, Nah, fam. I stuck around long enough so that I could travel <laughs> to other countries in the reason, because that's the main reason I accepted the job in Kuwait. But I was like, I'm not going to put up with this. But because I had an FU fund 
and I was not dependent like without having that paycheck from them. Cause this was the kind of place that may or may not pay you. So, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> so without them being able to hold money over my head, I was free that when I was done, I could pack up my stuff and I could leave. And that's what I did. That's, that's what FU money does. It removes that stressor of, I have to do this because I won't be able to afford it. It gives you that space and, and freedom to make decisions based off of, is this good for me? And not let your ability to be able to afford to leave be the thing that dictates how you move. And so staying, oh. staying abroad, being abroad, it is even more important. I, oh my gosh, you talk about in the various expat groups or, you know, people who want to move abroad groups just this week, in the last seven days, there were two posts that were specifically about, they were moving abroad, but like their inability to afford certain certain elements of it. And I'm just like, if you get abroad and mind you, we're talking about doing this in the middle of a pandemic and something goes wrong. What are you going to do? You, especially if you're in new to a country and you haven't had time to establish a network, you are your safety net. So yeah, everybody needs some FU money. I also asked Adelia to tell me how she transitioned from being an educator, not only in Houston, but also all around the world and into becoming a financial life coach. How did I transition? I need to do work that matters. And I really wasn't feeling like the work I was doing in the education space. I didn't feel like I was making a difference anymore. And, you know, that's again, that's that's the beauty <laughs> of the life that I have created. I am no longer in a position where I have to do things I don't want to do. And something that has always been uh, like an important topic for me is like money and finance and that sort of thing, because, you know, I did not grow up with like I didn't know it, but I grew up poor, apparently. And so you know, the things that I had to learn on my own, I can look around and see where that knowledge would help other people. And so it was obvious to me, like, that's what I get excited about. That's the kind of work that I should be doing. In my work, I, I guess my philosophy is um, everybody can do this. And it's it's about being empowered, getting the knowledge and, you know, like, there is, what is it they say? There's nothing new under the sun, you know, like folks. And, and because of my personality, as anybody watching this can tell, I am pretty straightforward. What you see is what you get. It's not about the con or the schmooze with me. Like I'm going to tell you what you need to know. And then I'm going to set you free so that you can do it on your own. It's not about like, oh, can I get a returning client? That sort of thing. Uh, that's not how I work. So that's uh, people who work with me I, I talk about helping them build the financial confidence because I think that right there is a, a key part of it, especially if you grew up in a family where maybe y'all didn't have a lot of money or people didn't talk about money or there are all kinds of emotions and negative feelings associated with it. You often, people often feel like, oh, I can't do that. 
Like it's too complicated. It's too confusing. I can't do that. I need to find somebody to dictate my, my finances for me. And I am a strong advocate, especially for women, for them to know those things. Cause you know, like take my situation, got married at 19. Let's say the marriage ends 20 years later. And if he had been the person in charge of the finances and the investments and all of that, I'd have been screwed. I would have been penniless and no clue because he's not the, he was not the kind of person that would have been like, Hey, you've been my wife for 20 years. Let me cut you in was rightfully yours. No, he was not that kind of person. So I would have been screwed. And I, this is something, you know, like everybody's grandma pulls them to the side and tells them, you know, like always keep your your own money. This is one of those things. Like I want women to have this knowledge because they need it. You were a school teacher in Texas. You moved to Honduras. You took a 60% pay cut, 60%. And I'm not thinking, you didn't make that much money. as a No, I did not. <laughs> You make a 60% pay cut and you have been able to invest, to save, to be able to show enough funds to get a permanent residency, I think, or residency in Mm -hmm. Mexico. How did you do that? And can you please explain to people how they may be able to craft a game plan? Because, you know, I feel like people, some people want to move abroad because it's cheaper, whatever that means. And whenever they say it's cheaper, they rank, they always throw out places. And I'm like, I don't think that's cheap, but okay, <laughs> whatever. They want to go somewhere that's cheaper or where their money goes longer. But as we kind of talked about, it's not necessarily about saving. It's about investing. It's about growing money. It's about compounding. It's, it's so many different things. So you could be, you know, teaching in Honduras or here in Spain or somewhere else and still be reaching your financial goals. So tell us a little bit how you did it and what kind of advice you have. The the biggest ways that I was able to do that, that when, when they showed me what they could offer me. And mind you, I was one of the highest paid employees at the school. <laughs> so one of the ways that that was possible is I have always avoided debt. Debt is a four-letter word. It is the tool of the oppressor. Now, I am not judging anybody because I have had mortgages, I have had car loans, but you've got to approach debt with a strategy. It is, you can wield it as a tool, but that's what you have to do with it. So um, I had no credit card debt. Now, I was able to avoid student debt because when I went to school, school was a lot cheaper. And I didn't realize the blessing that was until I got ready to send my own kid to college and was like, what the hell? What the hell are y'all charging? But and there are ways. Don't please don't think, oh, I've got student loans. I came over abroad. No, 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 no. That's totally doable. But the bigger issue is consumer debt, credit card debt. So one, I had fewer financial obligations that I was leaving behind. I was not. So as I was making peanuts and ice water in Honduras, I was not having to siphon off a portion of that to pay bills back in the United States. So that that's one. Two, I had already started investing, you know, as a public school teacher, you're talking about 
not only do they screw us over and pay us very little in the investment options that were available to me compared to people who have who work in other fields night and day. So I had to navigate that to find a way to invest where I wouldn't be spending ridiculous amounts of money on fees. So with a Roth IRA, because I didn't have a, a, a 401k was not available to me, a 403b was, but the options weren't great. And a brokerage account. I keep things simple, index funds. I am not trying to be the wolf of Wall Street. I just, I need my money to beat inflation. And this is, this is why savings doesn't work. The inflation rate is around 3%. Can you name a single bank paying 3% in interest? No, you're lucky if you get half a percent, lucky. So just putting money aside, you're actually losing money to inflation. So I, I bought ETFs. I just put money in ETFs, broad uh, index funds, and I let it grow. That's, that's really, that's really all it was. Now, after moving abroad, because even in Honduras, even on what I was, the little bit I was making, and one friend jokes like, yeah, they're paying you in seashells. Even on that little bit, I still saved 50% of it. Wow. Now, you know, if you can move abroad and someone is sponsoring you, they should typically pay for your housing, you know, like your expenses should be minimal. So even if the package isn't very uh, like a high number, you don't have to like spend all of it. So I was still putting aside half of that and then continued to do that. And then like the last year in China, cause I couldn't go anywhere after January, I think my savings rate there was like 70, somewhere between 70 and 90%. Because, you know, that you want to live on it. it, it Y'all, it's not rocket science, but it does take some work to get in the mental headspace to do that because you are bombarded with imagery and ideas from the media and society about, well, this is how you're supposed to live. But if I can save 50% of my income and invest that and still be able to do the things that matter to me, like travel, then yeah, at 45, I can decide I don't want to work anymore. I can show my financial assets to the consulate in Mexico. And they're like, okay, yeah, you meet the financial solvency requirements. Here is residency. So it, I, I keep it very, very simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. And y'all, how you manage your tax exposure, because I assume you're a tax resident of Mexico. I don't know if you get dividends from your, from your stocks. How do you, when you're an entrepreneur, how do you manage your tax exposure? Is that an issue for you? Well, it is an issue and it played into uh, my decision on, what country to seek residency from because I was strongly considering Colombia. And then I learned that once I became a tax resident, they were going to be taxing the money that I made in the United States. And yeah, there are tax treaties, but if there's anything you should pick up is I like things simple. 
So any once you start complicating things, I'm like, mm, I'm not interested. Mexico is a place that as long as your economic activity, the, it is not derived from Mexico, they're not interested in taxing it. So that would change. Let's say I bought a property here or I decided to run an Airbnb. That money is being made in Mexico. So Mexico wants their piece of it. But what I do online, my customers are not Mexican. They're like, okay, we don't, we don't care about that. Same thing with like dividends, that sort of thing. Mexico is not interested in that. Now I have toyed with the idea of citizenship because I'll be eligible in three years. And hopefully by then my Spanish would be good enough to pass the test, but that then would open me up to a tax situation that is not beneficial for me. So that is a concern. I'm, I'm all, I would like to have residency in an additional country, but, and you shouldn't let a fear of taxes dictate your life. But at the same time, you gotta, you, you gotta weigh the pros and cons and be smart about it. So like, I'm looking at Spain, I'm looking at Portugal, but I need some, I need some answers on the tax situation before I pursue that because especially European countries tax at a much higher rate, which oh, I yeah. understand, I, <laughs> I understand and I'm, I'm all for that, but I need to make sure that I fully understand the ramifications of that. And, you know, determine how comfortable I am. So, you know, that, what did they, I think they call that geo arbitrage where you are looking at countries and you are weighing that and deciding, you know, like at some point it may make sense to offshore my business, but right now I'm operating an American business. I just physically happen to live in Mexico. And because of the tax situation here, that works. Because we all know Uncle Sam wants his money, regardless of where I am. I asked Adelia what would be her advice for women wanting to not only move and live abroad, but truly thrive abroad. And she gave some really amazing dollars and cents advice. First thing you got to think about it, what are your priorities? what's important to you because that's where you're going to spend your money. For me, travel is a priority. However, I need to, I will downsize other areas of my life and spend less money so that I have the money I need to travel with. If it's really important that you have designer clothes, as one of my favorite finance gurus says, you can afford anything not everything. What are the things that matter? You want to retire? When do you want to retire? If you want to retire sooner, that's going to require a much more aggressive plan with the saving and the investing to make that happen. If you're not willing to give up some creature comforts to make that happen, okay, then you got to change your timeline. For the women that want to stay abroad, here's the thing. We have no safety net. And I'm very much speaking from a personal experience because as a public school teacher in Texas, I never paid into Social Security. So there is no Social Security for me. I know a lot of women go abroad. They're using the money that they make to finance their current lifestyle. 
and maybe anticipate I get Social Security and I can use that to retire on. Well, the more time you are out of the country, you are not contributing to Social Security. So you may not qualify for it at all, or you may not qualify for the amount you thought you would have had you continued to work in the U.S. If you're somebody like me, like you are a school teacher, Unless you taught for a long time in the U.S., it is highly probable that you will not be receiving any kind of retirement benefits from the United States. So that means it's all on your shoulders and you have to do some investing for that. The easiest thing to do, I'm all about keeping everything simple. Now, if you are somebody that's got a mind for numbers and you love research, fine, go out there, invest in individual stocks. But if you would rather spend your time doing other things, I know I would, all you need is a couple of index funds that track a large market index. You want to make it really simple, get a total stock market index fund and invest your money in that every month, put so much in. It can be in a normal taxable investment account because being outside the United States, if you are exempting your foreign earned income, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA. You can't do a traditional 401k because that's pre-tax money. And if you're not working for a U.S. employer, you don't have that option. Now, if you work for a corporation, this may be different. My experience is with teaching and education. A lot of these schools will have quote unquote retirement programs, which are really just scams, or they are very, very pricey. You end up paying more than you end up making. I, I like to be in control of my money. <laughs> that way, if it all goes down the drain, at least I know I'm the reason it went down the drain. You need to be investing in something that might be stock that might be real estate, but a saving will not make you rich. You won't beat inflation saving money. Saving is for short-term things like that trip to Spain. That's for saving. Investing is how am I going to live when I don't want to work anymore? I always like to tell people you need to have at least three pots of money. You need to have like your oh shit money. Like I got to get up out this country right now. Like I did in Kuwait. You need to have your, your, your F you money. Like I'm tired of all y'all. I'm quitting. I'm out. I don't need this job. And then you need to have like your hell yeah money. Like, oh, we're going to the south of France next weekend. And instead of thinking, do I have a credit card, blah, blah, blah. No, I got my hell yeah money. Like, hell yeah, I'm going with y'all to the south of France. Think about your money in those different pots. And how can you add to that? How can you help those pots grow? When I was still in the U.S., I, I came to the realization that the life I wanted, I could not afford to live in the United States because as a public school teacher, I didn't have the earning potential that would be necessary. I'd been married for 20 years and the person I was married to, our money styles were not the same. So where I might have been a much more aggressive saver and investor because I had to take somebody else into consideration. That didn't happen. I kind of felt I could have been in a better situation. The life I wanted to lead, I could not afford in the United States. That was just one more reason to go abroad. And then all of a sudden, my money could go so much further. I 
have always been a saver. I'm self-taught for the most part when it comes to investing, although I am working on my certification in personal finance counseling. I was already thinking about financial independence, retire early, and how I could make that work. I used some of that knowledge and that planning to figure out, okay, how much longer would I need to work? Where can I live? And so I used that in my country shopping as I was doing my research and figuring out which countries might be the best ones for me. I had the idea of countries I thought might be nice. Like, for instance, I thought Switzerland, that might be a nice place. And then I researched that in order to get a retirement visa in Switzerland, you need to have an annual income of $100,000. Income, not net worth, not savings, but an income. I was like, okay, Switzerland doesn't want poor people. I can't live there. I had to adjust and figure out. And and that's one of the things that makes Latin America attractive. Malaysia was another place on my list. I visited Malaysia a couple years ago and decided that I probably wouldn't want to live there. Although I lived in Houston my entire life, I have had enough heat. So Malaysia and Thailand were both at the top of my list. And as much as I enjoy Thailand, I don't want to live in that heat all year long. Right now, like Portugal, I wouldn't mind being in Europe. Again, for travel opportunities, the ability to have healthcare, but learning Portuguese might be an issue. I have residency in Mexico. My final destination, that is still up in the air, but I have very much thought and planned and am planning looking at my finances and what that's going to look like and what can I do with what I have and what I will have. Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting the podcast either via Patreon at patreon.com slash flourish foreign or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign or tipping the podcast via cash app at dollar sign flourish foreign. You can also purchase a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wish list at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to invite you to join the Flourish in the Foreign membership where our community can connect with other amazing, incredible people who live and thrive abroad, but also you will have access to our book club, all of our past podcast guest discussions, all of the experts and interesting people that I bring to you all, and a lot more great benefits. If you're interested in joining the Flourish in the Foreign membership, be sure to join via the link in the description of this episode. All right, let's continue the show. So another aspect of being financially well abroad is really understanding credit abroad. It is something that not everyone really understands. And so for this discussion, I am bringing in Lisa R. Mitchell, who was a former 
international banker who worked primarily in the expat division of her banks. And so she really, really dropped a lot of great information. If you have not heard her full episode on the podcast, you definitely need to do it. And also make sure you have some pen and paper nearby for that discussion because she really goes in. And also Lisa and I have a discussion on YouTube as well that you should definitely check out. So here's Lisa. I asked Lisa to talk about credit and whether the concept of credit as Americans may know it is the same abroad. First of all, there is really no global credit score. Credit histories don't move. They don't travel. There are a couple of companies now that are working so you can have an international credit score. You have to kind of know what you're signing up for. Try to have an understanding of the local credit laws, right? In some countries, like in the Middle East, you don't pay your debts, you go to jail. Some countries not paying your debts or your credit might be tied to your immigration. Remember, privacy rules are different in countries. I read someone, she's married to someone who's Israeli, and they were saying they were going out of the country on a trip and they were at the border at the airport and they pulled out something. Oh, you didn't pay these bills. You still owe these debts. Well, how would they know that? That's because privacy rules are different in other countries. So I would say credit is definitely one. And if you do decide, if you're already living abroad and you intend to come back to the U.S. at some point, you want to make sure that you're not credit invisible and that you've developed a thin file. Right. People go, oh, I'm going to pay off all my debt. And OK, but then if you need to come back to the U.S., you'll be starting as if you were an 18 year old child. And a lot of people live overseas. Often they'll find that their credit score has taken a hit. Maybe utilization has changed or again, they've closed all their credit lines and their credit invisible. They're just like someone who moved to the U.S. Living overseas, you always have to worry about identity theft. I mean, having a digital virtual mailbox. I always advise that do not rely on relatives. Yes, your grandmother or your mom is very nice. Maybe you're getting something in the mail you don't want them to see. But also you want to make sure that you're managing your mail, online mail company, a virtual mailbox. They're going to scan every piece of mail. They can send you your mail wherever you are. And identity theft is huge. What if elderly people or baby boomers, they're ripe for the picking for identity theft? identity theft and fraud. And you don't want to find out maybe they had a family member living with them and they stole their identity and then they stole your identity. Make sure you're checking your credit report before you leave the country and while you're living abroad. You can do that at annualcreditreport.com, I think for free. Always use a a VPN, virtual private network. Always. like that. I, I even use one here while I'm in the United States, which encrypts what's going on on your computer and protects it. If you have to just use Wi-Fi, always make sure you have a, a, a password with it. Always protect your passport. Never let it out of your sight, right? Because once that's gone, that's it. So always protect your bank data in terms of your credit You want, while you're living abroad. Also, don't forget about your children and their credit as well. You want to do a credit freeze, credit alert, and credit monitoring. And you always want to do that during your whole time living overseas. I also asked Lisa how one should properly vet a financial advisor. What happens is expats, especially Western expats, Europe, US, we're thought of like, we're just overflowing with money. You move to any major financial enclave, Hong Kong, Shanghai, London, you're besieged with financial advisors, I put in quotes. 
And for you as citizens, since a lot of investments that you could have, the IRS takes a very uh, dim view. There's a lot of reporting and there's a lot of penalties and taxation that could take place. You really need someone that understands, again, that works with people who live a global lifestyle and who can sit down with you and understand what your strategy is. The other thing is you need to have a strategy. Again, I had set a friend who were in China and she goes, I'm trying to invest. She was trying to do trades. And I'm like, you're in China. You think your US brokerage account, you think you can just go online and do it and it's not going to be a problem? And she goes, oh, I didn't even think about that. So before you move overseas, you need to have an investment strategy, right? And you need to have someone that understands what are your, what are your goals going to be, right? Okay, I'm living overseas and I'm going to be living there for five years. Do you have a portfolio already? Are you going to be investing? You're moving overseas. Is that going to be the first time you're investing? The United States, good, bad, or indifferent, we have a really good financial structure. You can invest in anything from the US and you don't have to open anything foreign, which subjects you to a lot more scrutiny from the IRS, a lot more reporting. So you really, that's what you need to think about. But again, is your advisor know how to work with people who live a global lifestyle? Does he understand the rules for PFIX, PASIC? passive foreign investment corporation, which is just like pooled investments? Does he understand about FACTA and FBAR? Does he know what type of investments to put you in? Does he or she know how you can automate your investments while you're overseas? Is he in line with what your goals are going to be? Say you're living in Spain for three years, but then you want to live somewhere else for two years. Those are the questions you need to ask. And you need to, you need to know a lot of people. I see a lot of people. It's easy to get when you live overseas to get kind of seduced by some of these local advisors. Then you find out that you invested in these foreign products that you don't know about or that have some real tax ramifications that you hadn't planned on. Now, if you're sticking with someone who's in the U.S., well, obviously the things you did pre-departure before you moved overseas in terms of vetting them and, and, and knowing about their credentials. That's what I would say. A lot of people in China, I would ask, are you, cert-? actually, I think at the time in China, people didn't necessarily need to be certified. So what does that mean? Anybody can sell investments? You don't, you don't want that. So you also, again, like with taxes, would I hire an investment professional that hasn't lived overseas, that hasn't experienced this? Probably not. I want someone who only works with people who live a global lifestyle. That's kind of where I am. That's my advice for people. On the podcast, I have showcased women who have brought their children abroad or who have had children abroad. And I asked Lisa to discuss what were the financial implications or at least some of the things to think about when having children abroad. For Valentine's Day, I do an article about moving abroad for love and some things you need to think about. So again, what's your why? How did you end up abroad and how did you end up having a child abroad? And why would you do that? Because there are some people, I have fr- uh, friends, they choose, they may be living abroad on an assignment with their partner and they choose to come home. They do not want to have their child in a foreign country. So why are you even doing that? 
if you have a child in a foreign country, right, is that child going to be a citizen? Are you choosing that? You have to go to the U.S. embassy and do that. If you're having a son in certain country, not even a son, maybe a daughter, is that child going to have to be subject to do compulsory military? So those are some of the just things that you need to think about. And finances, where are you having this baby? Is it safe? Is it cheaper? What do you mean by, what do people mean by cheaper? I was just in Thailand last year for Thanksgiving and in Bangkok where the healthcare is excellent. There are excellent hospitals. And one of the women who just had a baby, she didn't think it was that, you know, she was giving out some forms and figures. What are your reasons for having your, your baby abroad? Now, most countries have better maternity benefits than they do in the United States, meaning you could take off time from work, you'll get paid, the father can do paternity leave. So those are good reasons, even though it's changing a little bit in the U.S. for the better. If you're not married and you're having a child abroad, what does that mean? Whether you're married or you're not married, you need to be having a financial discussion with your partner about how things are going to happen. If you're not married, you need to definitely have a cohabitation agreement, which spells out what you're going to do. What Are you going to be like Carrie from Sex and the City? She moved overseas with the Russian. Who pays for your apartment? What if things don't work out and you've given up your life in the United States? Can you, if you have a child with someone overseas, can you bring the child back with without the father's permission. We know that's a, a big issue with, with uh, child kidnappings overseas. So you need to think about that. Obviously, you need to be saving as much money as you can. You need to figure out if you're going to have your child in a private hospital, a public hospital. Are you part of the healthcare system in this foreign country? That will guide a lot of things or you're paying for it out of pocket. I've seen some people pay for it out of pocket because it's just cheaper. Safety is an issue. Speaking about educating your child, what are the rules for educating your child in a foreign country? Like all children, all people cannot afford to send their child to the international school. Sure, if you're on an expat assignment and your company's paying for it, but those are far and few between. Some countries don't allow foreigners to go to school with locals. So you need to think about, I just read uh, a post on Facebook where the children were having problems integrating into the school. Language is an issue. Age is an issue. Those are things that you need to think about. Where do you want your child to go to school? There are some kids who've been raised abroad. They may not go back to the United States until they're adults for college. I just sat in on a a seminar about how you can save for your child's education in most instances, you can do it the traditional ways of five to nine, things like that, where you can save. And again, you need to speak to an investment person because those are guided by states to figure out what's the best avenue for you to do if you want to continue to contribute to their education. Another thing to think about, what if your child has learning challenges? A lot of times overseas, the country you may be living in, they, they may not have an infrastructure to support that. It used to be a long time ago, if your child had any, your whole family, if you were going overseas, you needed a visa and you needed to be tested. If your child had certain disabilities, I remember a friend of mine, she was a lawyer and she was an immigration attorney for global corporations. I forgot. I think the child may have been in a wheelchair. The country is going to reject the family. No way. This was a long time ago. But even if they accept, 
are, are there going to be services that are available to your child? Do you want your child subjected uh, to the to extra scrutiny, not getting the services? There are lots of expat stories where the child maybe had a learning disability or maybe the child was on the spectrum and it went unnoticed by the school, right? I, I haven't really heard that many good stories about expat children and schools, even big international schools, being able to kind of diagnose and handle it. I asked Lisa to describe the biggest mistakes people make with their finances while living abroad. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a tax accountant or this is from all my experience, all my research. That's my disclaimer. So first of all, when you're moving overseas, right, you really should move. And and these are things that I've learned. I've not done everything perfectly. You should be moving with intention. Why am I moving abroad? What am I hoping to get out of it? Right. And these things will all guide your finances. Also, where are you in the circle of life? Are you a student? Are you mid-career? Are you a professional? Are you executive? Because if you're a student, maybe you don't have that much money. If you're executive or mid-level career, you've got investments, right? You might have real estate. You might have a lot of other things that you have to work. You might have kids. You might still have to contribute to their education. And then I see people move over abroad. First of all, and I've been in this space in financial services and banking, two top banks, in their expat and international banking divisions, one of them running. People move abroad, they don't think about finances. That has not changed in 25 years at all. And that's probably your biggest mistake. Or let's say your company's sending you over, say, oh, my company will take care of everything. I don't have to worry about that. I had that conversation with someone I met at a conference last year in Singapore. That's wrong. You should always have a handle on your finances and ultimately it's your responsibility. You don't just need a budget. You need a financial blueprint. And I'm actually coming up with kind of a template blueprint that I'm, I'm going to hope to give to people. You need to know what your expenses, you need to split things between your host country, which is you can call it your host foreign country. What are going to be your expenses there? Where are you getting your income from? What are your expenses in the United States that you're still going to have to deal with? So you need a plan. How are you going to manage your investments? How are you going to manage contributing to your retirement? How are you going to manage taxation in a foreign country? How are you going to manage your U.S. credit? How are you going to manage identity theft? And people don't think about these things at all. This is a key mistake. Oh, I'm going overseas. And I say, oh, that's great. What currency are you getting paid in? Oh, I don't know. What currency is the country that you're going to? Oh, I don't know. You need to know that. You need to know how you're getting paid. You need to know your sources of income. One of the biggest challenges for me, I think, was getting paid monthly, which I hated, and having to sign an employment contract. We don't do that in the U.S. Most jobs don't. It's work at will. And we certainly very rarely get paid once a month. So you need to align your finances uh, to do that. The other thing is now, especially we've seen with COVID-19, you cannot rely on just your employer, just one employer. You need multiple sources of income, right? You, You need to list out, this is most important, what your sources of income will be. And people just don't do that. The other one besides foreign exchange is how are you going to move money, right? My student loan is due, it's due tomorrow. Well, if I'm getting paid in RMB, 
let's say my student loan is with Citibank. They're not going to take that. So I need time to move my money, exchange the money, and then move it and then pay my financial obligations. So you need to look at what your financial obligations are going to be. A lot of people don't think about moving money. Also, people get so focused. Well, I want to move overseas and I want to save money. Well, that's great. You're putting savings in a foreign country, in a bank account. Well, how are you going to get your money out? A lot of people with COVID-19 got stuck at home. It happened during the Chinese New Year. They didn't realize they couldn't get their money out if they're in another country. You can't just always use an app or call the bank to get your money out. So you always want to know that. You always also want to have a plan B. What's your what's your escape plan? Something COVID-19 happens or or another financial crisis happens? Are you going to be able to go to another country? Do you have a home to come back to in the US? That's something to think about. In the US, credit is king. In other countries, cash is king. Always have cash on hand. Always have cash in multiple countries. Always have a bank account outside the foreign country you're in and another one in your home country, I like to call it a third bank account. Maybe it's just an account that's online somewhere in online mobile space, but that you can get to always make sure, you know, your ATM withdrawals, what's the amount, what's the maximum and make sure you know whether that's calendar day or business day. The most important thing is you need to think about these things pre-departure. We've talked about health insurance, which is a non-negotiable. You should not be leaving to go anywhere, or any country to live or work or even travel without some kind of healthcare policy that includes evacuation, that includes repatriation of remains. Another mistake I see people, their obsession with getting a local credit card and getting local credit and not understanding the credit terms in the foreign country. I was going to apply for a credit card in China. I couldn't even read the application. My Chinese is never going to be good enough that I'm going to be able to do it. Should I be applying for credit? And do I understand the credit system in China? I'm so credit trained and I've called on a lot of banks in China when I was a banker, but it's still something I wouldn't do. And a lot of people become obsessed with that. So taxes, taxes are obviously very country specific, depending upon which countries that you're not only a citizen of, but also the countries you hold residency and tax residency for, it's really important to consider. And so I wanted to pull in our tax expert, Tanya Munford-Pitts, and talk about all things taxes. Yes, employment and working abroad and also managing their tax exposure abroad. So here is a bit of our discussion all about taxes. Again, you can find the full conversation on the Flourish in a Foreign YouTube channel. If I'm working for a U.S. company and living abroad, how should I be filing my taxes? Do I have to withhold anything when filing out my I-9? Does my U.S. company need to be aware I'm living abroad? So if you're living abroad and you're not contracted to live abroad with your company, which it sounds like, one thing, yes, you can notify them that you are living abroad if you need to. But if they don't need to know, it's not necessarily necessary for tax purposes. When you say I-9, you might mean your W-9, I mean your W-4, I'm assuming, or your W-9. I'm not sure which the I-9 is the identification information, which gives them, you know, your 
birth birth information, your your social security number and all of those items. So I'm not sure if you're you're meaning I9. But if you're meaning a W-4, which is the tax forms that go withholding the correct amount of taxes, then, you know, with the new W-9 that the IRS has uh, implemented within the past three years, they basically have that set up so that all you do is check one or two boxes. There are no dependents to worry about on that new form. So you're just basically telling them, yes, I work and yes, I'm the only person. And then they will construct your taxes so that it's withholding at the proper rate and they're withholding the proper amount. So as far as going back to the first question, how should you be filing your taxes? One, you file annually. And then there are some forms that you should be filing for the foreign income exclusion so that you're able to offset your tax liability and reduce your taxes based on your earnings while you're living abroad. What tax residency preparations should aspiring expats consider before moving abroad? So, a lot of times when people are moving abroad, they just think like, well, I guess sometimes Americans, they don't one realize that America taxes on worldwide income. So it's like, you can never, yes. you can never can't escape. escape it. <laughs> right? Death and taxes, death and taxes. <laughs> but depending on what state they're in, they may still have state income taxes and they don't realize how like just leaving the country doesn't, you still have domiciles. Like it's hard mm-hmm. to not be domiciled in the United States. So what are some things people should start thinking about if they're like, I'm moving abroad and I don't plan on coming back? Like maybe they're not giving up their passport, but they're like, I'm moving abroad. What are some things tax wise they should start thinking about? Well, let's go to the misconception. One, there were some misconceptions that you weren't supposed to file a tax return or you did not have to file a tax return. So That has always been one of the biggest misconceptions outside of the United States. I'm no longer there. I don't have to file out of sight, out of mind. Not true. (laughs) That's that's one of the biggest misconceptions. The other misconception is, like you said, regarding the states, there are some states that still require you to pay income tax. Even if you're uh, if you don't have the same obligations with the federal government. So California, I don't care where you are in the world. They want their money. Alabama, I don't care where you are in the world. They want their money. So those, those two misconceptions are probably the biggest. And even if you're outside of the country for 20 years, the, the U.S. government still expects you to comply with filing your taxes annually. So the problems that go along with not doing that is things happen in your life. You may have to come back home eventually after 20 years. So by not filing your taxes, you don't have any income reported. Sometimes it impacts your social security and some people don't take that into play. And then there are some other issues when you come back, if you want to use it for credit, you have no documentation to prove that you earned income and they're not going to look at a foreign earned compensation worksheet and say, oh, yeah, you did make some money. 
mortgage. None of those things will assist you with purchasing a home, buying a vehicle. So if you don't have those ducks in a row when you come back to the U.S., should you have to come back to the U.S., then you won't be able to participate in the credit markets in the United States. So those are some tips and the misconceptions that go along with them. So some advice, definitely file annually, like I stated. Make sure that whatever state that you're considered a resident of, that you file with with that respective state as well. Most states in the United States offer you the same exclusions that you're offered in the United, I mean, sorry, on the federal tax side. And, you know, we can definitely share those states with you, you know, once if we ever do any work for you or you can Google it. Trust me, it's out there. And then also making sure that and and there are some opportunities for those some states where you won't have to pay taxes, even in Alabama or California, depending on how long you have been abroad. So there are a lot of, you know, little extra areas where you can kind of circumvent the tax laws in those states. But making sure that you file annually for me is just probably the biggest thing, biggest takeaway for you. So let's get into something that I've seen in a lot of expat forums. So for people who are like, I'm leaving the United States, maybe they're like, I'm retiring and I'm going to die abroad and I'm going to be buried abroad. I'm not coming back. Um, They they pay their taxes because they're retiring and they want to get that social security. And they decide to, you know, sell everything, maybe like in maybe they were domiciled in Florida and they're like, mm, I'm the or maybe Georgia and they sell everything. And then they get a digital mailbox in mm-hmm. like Wyoming or what else is one of those states? People like South Dakota, I think. Is that enough to set up? Can, can a digital mailbox set up domicile for you so that you can be to use as like a, as a tax residency? Does it work like that or no? Generally, the way the states look at it is where is your banking set up? What about your driver's license that you've had for years? Are you going to go to Wyoming and get a new driver's license? Um, So it's not as simple as just having an address somewhere because you can live in Georgia and have all your mail sent to your family in Florida while you're abroad. So it's not that simple. The other issue is if you own a home or in this instance, you've sold everything. So there is no home. sold. but in an instance where one has left and they've left for years, but they still have this home in Georgia, you're still considered a Georgia resident. So you have to really take all the steps necessary to to show that you are moving you know, just like you would if you were living in the U.S. So I'm going to get another driver's license from another state. I'm going to, you know, like you said, get the address in another state. I'm going to do all of these things. One, to limit my tax um, liability in a state that does have taxes and to make sure that you can prove to the federal government that you are actually and, you know, actively working towards being a resident of another state. But you can't get away from not being a United States citizen. So you cannot get away from being a resident of a state in one of the 50 United States. You know, so I tell people for tax purposes, I understand you don't want to pay a certain tax in a certain state. I totally get that. 
But just be careful when you take those steps and make sure that you can prove that you did it for the right purpose and not just to get away from taxes. I want to speak specifically to entrepreneurs or people who consider themselves digital nomads, because I feel Mm -hmm. like there has been a lot of stuff in the news about taxes and tax residency. And one, there is this misconception that people have used around to like blanket the entire world, even though it's strange because I'm like, there's however many countries there are, there's that many tax jurisdictions. Like there's no one universal tax jurisdiction, but there's this misconception with some digital nomads that say, as long as I don't make money in this country, my customers are not in this country, then I'll gotta pay taxes in this country. Now I live in Spain and Spain is not like that. They're like, you're a tax resident if you live here for 183 days. And in Spain will tax on worldwide income if you're a tax resident, but then there's treaties and things like that. Mm-hmm. How, can you speak to why people, I don't know if you know why people think that they can't, they, they shouldn't have to pay taxes uh, in the countries that they live in. But do you have any stories of people or some advice to help these digital nomads not get taxed and deported and things like that? Well, you know, you know what they what is the saying uh, when in Rome do what the Romans do? So if the Romans are paying taxes on any of the income that they're earning in Rome, then you as a U.S. citizen should be following the same rules that the Romans are following. So the, the biggest problem is, and I'm using this, you know, not as a derogatory remark, but it's ignorance, ignorance of the law. And you know, as American citizens, we sometimes get the big head and we think we can do what we want to do when we go wherever we go. And that is not the case. There are laws in countries, every country um, that you embark upon, where you have to follow certain steps in order to become a business owner. Just like in the United States, you know, we have to have a business license. You know, we have to file our taxes annually. We have to pay taxes on business earnings in certain situations. So uh, those same rules apply. So if you want to be a true entrepreneur, and I don't say just in in other countries, even in the United States, uh, one of my mottos is if you want to do business at the table, you can't do business under the table. Okay, Mm -hmm. so. What that means is you have to follow the rules. So investigating, finding out exactly what you need to do to be an an entrepreneur. I mean, we can have a side hustle if that's what you want to call it. But if you want to grow a true business, be it domestic or global or worldwide, then you need to start investigating exactly what you need to do to be a business owner in that country. Otherwise, it's just a side hustle. And, you know, of course, you can pad your pockets or do whatever you can. But can you bring the money back to the United States? So that's something else to consider. Is it in a bank account? Are you depositing these funds? And you can't do that if you're not following the rules and the laws of those states. I don't have any. uh, Well, I do have some experiences where people have done business with citizens of those countries 
and they were taken. Their money was taken because they didn't know <laughs> how the rules worked. You know, in Kuwait, you have to have a sponsor and that sponsor has to have the bank account. Well, guess what? If all of that money is going into that bank account, who's to say that they can't take it and you're all out? They can't, you can't do anything about it. So unless you properly set up and establish those businesses abroad, to me, it's just a side hustle. The other part of it is if you're a digital nomad and you are operating a stateside business globally, well, then again, you have to follow the rules of, you know, what we're supposed to follow in the U.S. as a business owner, you know, business license, register with your state if you have a an LLC or a corporation. So all of those steps you need to put into play when you're establishing your business. It, to me, location doesn't matter. No matter where you are, you need to do what you're supposed to do and follow the rules of that particular country. Rafka and Esbar, what are these things and why are they important? So Prior to 2011, people were working abroad, earning foreign earned income, not pay, not filing their taxes. And if they had enough income to that was more than the foreign income exclusion, they weren't paying the taxes associated with it. And actually, it wasn't those people. It was people that were having offshore income millions and billions of dollars, you know, not us little people, you know, those that had plenty of money and they were storing their funds offshore outside of the United States. And those countries were gladly, you know, hey, you can put your money in my bank. I don't mind. I can earn all the interest in the world. And so what the IRS and the federal government decided to do was they cracked down on those people. Well, the rest of us get caught up in all of that. So now, and, and the purpose of it is, I, I call it a marriage. They marry your taxes with these foreign bank accounts. So if you have a million dollars in a foreign bank account and one, A, we don't have a tax return. How is that possible? Or two, you're only reporting $50,000 a year. How is that possible? So all of those connections, they tie together, and that's what FATCA is all about. So the Foreign Bank Account Reporting Act, which is FBAR, the Foreign Bank Account Reporting Act requires you to report any income over $10,000 in total on any given day in your bank accounts abroad. So now you have this Foreign Bank Account Reporting Act that you're responsible for. You have $50,000 in your account. How did it get there? So now you need to file this tax return that kind of helps the U.S. government understand, oh, okay, she worked abroad for a certain amount of time. I can see how she could build up X number of dollars in this foreign bank account over time. So that's basically what it is. If you don't have over $10,000, and this is an aggregate. So if you have five bank accounts and they all have about $10,000 or more, then you're required to report all. If you have one bank account that only has $10,000 or more, you're required to report all five. 
So that's what that's all about since 2011. And they've, it has actually made people file tax returns because now the federal government and all of these other countries, they are in cahoots. So they're actually reporting what you have in these bank accounts, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. I think back in 2018, a lot of the countries started making you complete a W-9. I don't know if if anyone has had to do that with their bank account in their country, but I know in Kuwait in 2000, no, it was 16, 16 or 17, it started making you complete a W-9. Well, you know what a W-9 for is only for the United States. So they report what you have in your bank account. And that's why it's very important to file the tax returns and make sure you file your FBAR. FBARs are due. They give you an automatic extension. They're due by October. I want to thank the amazing guests that you heard on this episode. Thank you so much, Adelia of Picky Girl Travels the World. You can actually listen to her episode on this podcast at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Adelia. And I highly recommend joining her financial confidence boot camp. I am an affiliate of the program, but I strongly, strongly and highly recommend all of Adelia's services. She is the real deal. If you want to sign up for her financial confidence boot camp at no extra charge to you, but actually help out this podcast, you can by utilizing the Flourish in the Foreign link in the description of this episode and on the website flourishintheforeign.com. Big thanks to Lisa R. Mitchell of Living a Global Lifestyle. Lisa was also a guest on the podcast, and you can check out her episode of the podcast at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Lisa. I've also had Lisa on the YouTube channel, so you can watch her full interviews that you've heard parts of here on this episode on YouTube as well. Big thanks to Tanya Munford-Pitts, who was an exceptional, exceptional guest on the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel. Listen to our entire chat on the YouTube channel right now, especially if you have any questions about expat taxes. She is your expert. And thank you to Aquania Escarne of the Purpose of Money platform and podcast. If you want to check out our entire conversation, please do head over to the YouTube channel. Again, Flourish in the Foreign. Again, youtube.com, Flourish in the Foreign. And listen to that because she has a lot of amazing, amazing advice about building wealth abroad, about investing, about insurance, about a lot of things. If you are interested in getting to know these women even more, be sure to check out the show notes page of this here episode at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash financial dash wellness. All right, we have one more episode of season one, aka the longest season in podcast history. Just joking. But we have one more episode in season one, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. As I've told you before, in the meantime, between time, before season two launches in 2022, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram 
on YouTube, join the email newsletter so that you don't miss a thing because although the podcast is going on hiatus, I'm not actually. I'm going to be producing a lot of content for the YouTube channel and for the blog. I have a lot of actually exciting things, especially if you've been thinking about perhaps building a business abroad, moving abroad with intention, looking for community. You'll definitely want to tune in because I have very special things headed your way. And as always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. If you are looking for some music for your latest creative endeavor, I highly recommend you check out Zachary. You can check out all of his information in the link provided in the description of this episode. And remember, everyone, it's not about going abroad and it's not about being abroad. It's about being well. I know I switch it up. It's about being well. It's about being happy. It's about living your best life or at least the best chapter of your life. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I'm starting a podcast. Oh my God, I can't, now that I said it, I have to do it. And I want to interview you on my podcast. And it really is aimed at showcasing the lives and stories of Black women flourishing outside of their home country.